This is the podcast for the journal Genetics and Medicine, published by Springer Nature. It's the official journal of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. We invite you to join us in commemorating the second annual Medical Genetics Awareness Week, March 17th to 21st, celebrating the contributions of the entire medical genetics team to patient care and public health. For resources and tips on how you can celebrate Medical Genetics Awareness Week, please visit the new web pages at www.acmg.net slash medicalgeneticsawareness. I'm Cynthia Graber. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in the U.S. that develops in women. About 5 to 10 percent of these cancers are thought to be hereditary and identifiable with genetic testing. And the cost of genetic testing has plummeted. All this has led to an increase in genetic testing and to a fundamental question that two new papers in the journal Genetics and Medicine have addressed, who should be tested and for what. The first is an official points-to-consider paper from the ACMG addressing whether or not there's evidence to support BRCA1 and 2 gene testing and other breast cancer genetic testing for all breast cancer patients. Dr. Tua Pal, Associate Director for Cancer Health Disparities for the Vanderbilt University Ingram Cancer Center, is one of the authors of this points-to-consider paper. In it, they've synthesized the guidelines about breast cancer genetic testing from a variety of different organizations and considered the existing data. We're kind of looking at the different guidelines out there. We're looking at the data and then coming up with, well, what is our position on this? really important national issue. Dr. Susan Domchek, director of the Basser Center for BRCA at the University of Pennsylvania, wrote a commentary on the issue as a response to the points to consider. We have to figure out who we should be testing, so which patients. And the second issue is, which genes should we be testing for? BRCA1 and BRCA2, or should we be looking for mutations in lots of other genes as well? Dr. Pell says one of the most recent studies that prompted this analysis came out last year. It's a study recommending that every breast cancer patient get genetic testing, that this would catch people who were missed by following the current testing guidelines. But she says the author's conclusions didn't match the evidence. The rates of positive tests were significantly different depending on whether the patients met the current criteria for testing, whether or not they had onset of cancer at a young age or had a strong family history or were of a particular ethnicity with higher incidence than the general public versus those who didn't. So those that did meet guidelines were more likely, much more likely, actually, to have a BRCA mutation or a PALB2 mutation, whereas those that didn't meet criteria had mutations or pathogenic, likely pathogenic variants in genes that we don't even know are associated with breast cancer or we're confident are not associated with breast cancer. And then some of the more moderate penetrance genes. And she says today, only about 20% of high-risk patients receive testing. So then to now say, hey, we should test every single woman with breast cancer If we think about it, we haven't even gotten to the high-risk people yet, and this is more than two decades after having discovered the genes. If we were to test all women with breast cancer, that would increase our breast cancer population by about fivefold. So you see where the issues lie. Where are the resources? Where is the evidence to roll this out? And who's going to pay for it? Dr. Domchek says a main source of the issue is that there are two somewhat contradictory forces operating within the field of medicine today. One force is a cautious force, the one that says maybe we shouldn't start mammograms until age 50, that false positives can actually be harmful, and that information should be actionable and not cause undue harm. So there's this kind of one area that says figure out, you know, what should be the threshold of detection, you know, what uh, is the good balance of 
false positive results and the results that are really helping people. And the idea that everything that we do should result in added benefit to patient care. That's the one side, is that maybe we're doing too much and we really have to think about it. And on the other side, there is this increasing emphasis on on doing more. And examples there are that it's not just enough to do mammograms. If you have dense breast tissue, you should be getting, you know, MRIs as well. Um, if you get genetic testing, why only test for two or three or four genes when you can test for 80? Because if you test for 80, you will certainly find more stuff than if you test for two or three or four. But the question is, if a doctor sends away for a gene panel with 80 or even 130 genes on it, what data comes back? Uh, one of the things is the more we test, the more positive results we'll find, but the more variance of uncertain significance results we will find as well. The VUS results we see at an even higher frequency in populations that have had less testing historically, such as Blacks and Hispanics. So what we also know based on published data is that many clinicians are not familiar with how to treat individuals with variant of uncertain significance results. And that lack of familiarity can actually cause harm. Clinicians do act on these. That is what our data is telling us. Some of these women with VUS results are advised to get a double mastectomy. That is not appropriate care. If it's based on family history, that's different. But if it's based on having a VUS result, I think that is a huge opportunity for clinician education because that is not correct. Another area is, that's evolving is the moderate penetrance genes. For example, individuals with ATM and CHECK2 mutations where the risk for developing breast cancer in these individuals is generally between 25 to 30%. There are some caveats to that, but that would be in general all comers. Again, we do have some emerging data now that some of these women are being advised to have risk-reducing mastectomies. Again, that is not within our current guidelines. The other issue that's emerged is some of these women are also getting risk-reducing oophorectomies. Again, this data is newer and really emerging, but there is nowhere in the guidelines where we have evidence to suggest that the risk elevation in these women with CHECK2 and ATM would warrant that intervention. And some of the gene panels include genes that have literally nothing to do with breast cancer. It's really the kitchen sink approach. There are genes that we have no known association with breast cancer at all. But hey, we can do them. And that's like adding things like Lynch syndrome genes, hereditary colon cancer genes on the panel, because we can. And there isn't necessarily any answer as to why these panels have gotten so huge. They do not have to be that large. And so I would, uh, we have uh, been trying to encourage the use of a more limited gene panel so that you are less likely to get yourself in a muddle. The challenge gets to be that Americans particularly like when you offer them more for the same amount of money, right? It's a deal. <laughs> so why not do 130 genes? if you can, right? Uh, and so kind of pointing out that more can be messy, not always better, is interesting. In other countries, you know, they just decide and they say, nope, we're doing six genes and that's what we're doing. And they kind of make this uh, from the top. But here, this is all driven by market forces. There is no 
one standard. And depending on what company you go to and what test you pick, you can test any number of genes. It is the Wild West right now. Based on evaluating the data that exists today, Dr. Powell lists some of the main take-home messages of the Points to Consider paper. We agree that there are many breast cancer patients and many high-risk patients that are missed. So when it comes to breast cancer patients, we do think that everyone should be evaluated to determine whether they need genetic testing or not. So that, I think, is valid. But whether they should get testing should be based on a risk-stratified approach. We also think that as we are talking about who should be getting the genetic testing, that should be in the context of some form of genetic counseling or pretest genetic counseling education. Because again, we want to be clear that it's not the testing that's going to improve outcomes. It is the appropriate implementation of follow-up care that will improve outcomes. We also point out that there are some really important genes on these panels for which breast cancer patients are being tested for, but there are also genes on there where we're not really sure what is going on. So again, these are considerations that a clinician should really think about as they are proceeding with ordering testing for their patients. We also point out that many of the recommendations that have been developed are based on consensus guidelines rather than firm data at this point. I think the data is being generated and evolving very quickly, but some of the data that we're looking for does not yet exist. Dr. Powell and Dr. Domchek both say that as this data is being generated, there are two main areas that need immediate improvement. One, clinicians need access to improved genetic education and better information about what different genes on different panels mean, as well as data on how best to select what their patients should be tested for. So in, in the hands of people who are familiar with all of the genes for which they are offering the testing, which are actionable, they can advise their patients, hey, if this comes back, this is what you do about it. So those are the ways to meaningfully impact patient outcomes for the positive, right? So, But if you're testing for a laundry list of genes, but yet you don't know what to do about it once the results come back, then what good have you done? And I would argue that there's great potential to do harm. We need to have a really honest conversation about which genes we really should be testing for right now. Um, and if we can get our heads around that a little bit better, I think a lot of this, if you will, the controversies will go away when we kind of get a realistic idea about, you know, what are the things that are the most useful to patients. And on top of that, there's a need for more research about how to better reach patients at high risk who aren't yet getting genetic testing. That's a huge pool. They both say that reaching the 80 percent of high risk breast cancer patients who are not yet getting genetic testing is critical, as Dr. Domchek points out know that people, uh, that there are racial inequality and the socioeconomic differences. But is it because they're not offered testing? Is it because there's hesitation about getting testing. We know that there can be concern about cost, even though those concerns are largely unfounded. If people meet criteria for genetic testing, um, it is often fully covered by insurance. So I think that there's a lot of different uh, pieces of this, and we're not entirely sure of what every last barrier is. There is a lot of work ongoing about implementation strategies, doing everything from 
pretest video education to telegenetics uh, to digital health platforms to see whether we can narrow these barriers and also uh, figure out how to uh, implement this in a real way so that we can continue to expand testing. This is the podcast for the journal Genetics and Medicine, published by Springer Nature. It's the official journal of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. This podcast marks the second annual Medical Genetics Awareness Week, March 17th to 21st, celebrating the contributions of the entire medical genetics team to patient care and public health. For resources and tips on how you can celebrate Medical Genetics Awareness Week, please visit the new web pages at www.acmg.net slash medicalgeneticsawareness. I'm Cynthia Graber. 